0: Our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 through 23. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, Had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I was reading recently in a medical journal about a man who was being treated by a group of psychiatrists for his alcohol abuse. He experienced a lot of shame throughout his life, but immediately, as soon as his therapy began, felt somewhat better as he kind of got things off his chest. But as the therapy unfolded, they discovered a whole vein of trauma in the man's life from his childhood surrounding the loss of a parent. That period after his parents' death led to a lot of of out-of-control behavior that he'd really never worked through in a healthy way. Well, the therapist told him that the root of his alcohol abuse was likely a stunted process of grieving well for that lost parent. His anger and resentment that he had built up at his deceased parent, his, his other parent for not being able to save the other, and of course, his anger at himself for not being the kind of child he thought he was supposed to be. All of these had created this very paralyzed state of fear that was creating his urge to drink. Well, what surprised the patient, though, was this, that he was under the impression that when he went to counseling and to therapy, he really thought it was going to make him feel better. But instead, he was feeling much worse. Turns out psychiatrists have actually known about this tendency for quite some time. None other than Sigmund Freud himself discussed a concept he called negative therapeutic reaction. Where going to therapy, people reported feeling worse long before they ever started feeling better. But it occurs to me that if you think about this, it seems like this is mostly true in almost any medical situation. You go into the hospital, let's say, because you have shooting pains down your shoulders and arm, only to find out that you have a serious upper back issue. So you submit yourself to the doctor's order for surgery. But as you sit in that recovery room, having undergone the knife, you feel absolutely awful. Seems that the feeling of getting worse, feeling worse before you start to feel better, seems like it's just a natural way in which real healing happens. We say to ourselves, we don't want superficial answers. We want to get to the bottom of things. Great, but buckle up for an initial reaction of pain instead of relief. I mention this because I really feel like David would know exactly what that mental state is all about. Last week, we finished in chapter uh, 2 Samuel 6 9 with this little summary of David's mental state. When he was saying this, he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? You ever been in that spot? You ever looked at where you are and where you've brought yourself and you're thinking to yourself, how can I ever know him? You convinced me last week, Les, that being in the presence of God was what I want and need the most. But now I realize that I can't have it. Can Imagine how dejected David must have been, how embarrassed he was. This is his first official act as king, and it winds up with the death of, of the leader of the youth group, Uzzah. John Newton was the Puritan who once said that no one ever learned that they were a sinner by being told. Experience is God's school, he said. And sometimes you're going through a disaster and you suddenly realize things are tragically wrong. But the Bible, I think, is telling you in that moment, don't fight that feeling. Because it might be your first step into getting some really good news. How can I be saved? How can I ever come into the presence of a holy God? That's a good first step. You know, David only thought he knew what it meant to have the presence of God at the center of his reign as king. And God has now just showed him exactly what he really asked for. He has given him a severe mercy and let him see his sin. But in the days that follow, he showed David the path into the presence of God. And what I want for us this morning to realize is is that David's path is also our path. We still need to travel this exact same road with him. So again, just two points again this week. We want to look at the gospel in the presence, but then the transformation in the presence as well. Let's take that first one, the gospel in the presence. Look, the way that God showed David that he did not want for him just to go home and sulk about all this is what happened in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. <laughs> I've always laughed a little bit at the thought of what it must have been like to be Obed Edom. I mean, he just watched this box be the reason for someone's death, and someone is like, "I know, let's give it to Obed Edom." He must have been like, uh, or maybe someone else, perhaps, right? But that's not what happened. The crazy thing is, is in the weeks or months to follow, everything starts to go well for Obed Edom. everything. His kids are well-behaved. His his investments soar. Maybe maybe his his crops produced much more yield than he thought. The Lord blesses his house. Don't you see what the contrast is, though? How dangerous it was for people to be looking and seeing the fearful, terrible God who strikes people down. And now he's heaping goodness on top of me? What can that mean? We find out a little bit about that because God makes sure that David hears about it. And it was as if God was saying to David, David, I do mean to bless you. I do want you to dwell with me. This ark means that you can have fellowship with me. But it's got to be on my terms. And so as I said before, you can read this parallel telling of this story in 1 Chronicles 15. And there we find that David actually goes back and reads the law again. He starts searching through the books of Moses to find out how God wanted the ark to be moved. Granted, we can't interpret exactly what's going on in David's mind at this point, but judging from his adjustments, I like to think that David went back and started studying the tabernacle. In other words, we looked at this worship tent a couple years ago in the middle of the Jewish camp when we were studying Exodus. But simply dead in the center of this camp, there was this tent that housed all these symbolic and important furniture that spoke to the Jewish people about how they were to rightly think about God. So I like to imagine David reading along and realizing at one point that as you walked into the front doors of the tabernacle, the very first piece of furniture that presented itself to you was an altar. David knows what he wants. What he wants is way in the back, in the back room, the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God is. But firmly planted between him and that place is a place of death. It's a place of blood, a place of sacrifice, but also a place of substitution, a place of atonement. And I think at that moment the lights turn on for David. He gets it. He understands that no one gets to the place where the ark dwells if they don't go through the path of death and sacrifice. And so he combines what he's found out about Obed-Edom with the bitterness of his experience of the death of Uzzah, and what he reads, and he starts to bravely say, you know what, I think we need to start over again. So again, back in, we found out in 1 Chronicles, that he gets the Levites, he gets the Poles, they consecrate themselves, just like they were supposed to do in the law. We also see that he gets something else. In verse 13, it says, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Again, you've you've gotten used to this time, I hope, of me saying, watch for weird details that show up in your Bible reading and ask why that's there. What's the deal with the six steps? Well, I think it's actually fairly clear because to to a Jewish person, the number seven was kind of like a whole number. It was a number of perfection and and completeness. So David, it's as if saying, we're not going to make any real progress on this journey up the mountain to where we've got the tabernacle pitched before we stop and acknowledge the fact of what we're doing and that we need the blood. Finally, when he gets up on the, temple, on the tabernacle mount, the type of offerings he offers, we're told, are burnt offerings. It's a very specific ritual that you performed. And what you did was you had to literally lay your hands on top of the creature. And this was so that you could identify with it. And then after that, you killed it and completely burned it up. So it was as if you were looking and saying, I should be utterly destroyed when entering this place. But someone will be utterly destroyed instead of me so that I can pass through and finally get into the presence of God. When you see a burnt offering, there was identification with the sacrifice. You saw that sacrifice as being you, essentially. Reminded me of a fascinating story from from the book of Numbers 21 where we have the, um, the, the, the Jewish people going through the wilderness and complaining, again, that they were where they were. And so God decided he would pass judgment on them by allowing a bunch of snakes to come into the camp and bite a bunch of them. Wipes out tons of people, a whole group of them. So Moses goes to God and he begins to pray for a solution from the curse. And God tells him to do the weirdest thing He says, I want you to go, Moses. I want you to get a really, really big pole. And I want you to create a bronze snake and wrap it around the top of that pole. And I want you to stand it up at the head of the camp. And if everybody there would just simply look at this bronze snake, they'll be instantaneously healed. Now, again, I realize that looks like just another strange Bible story, and it is. But I think it illustrated something profound. Because did you notice that, those, that these Jewish people were told to look up at the very thing that was their problem? In other words, they're told to look at a snake, but a snakes are the very things that are poisoning them. What was it about that? What were they supposed to identify with in that moment if it wasn't the very picture of their curse? like I really, I really think this is profound. <laughs> What happens there in David as he's looking through these burnt offerings is he begins to see that he can only be in God's presence as he identifies with one who bears his sin, the one who bears his curse. And if he doesn't have that, there is no way into the presence of God. Now, of course, we know what David did not only, what David only saw, what, through a glass darkly, Paul would say? He saw Jesus. He saw the ultimate sacrifice that would have to be offered. So look, for us, I think that brings us to a point we have to recognize that it is entirely possible to have information about Jesus, but still be far from him. In other words, you can know that Jesus is a substitute, but do you see him as your substitute? Because this identification that we have with Christ at the cross is so profound that the Bible says that Jesus is literally carrying our entire identity with him on the cross. We have to look at him in the same way that the Israelites did that uh, snake in the wilderness as being our curse. So here's what I think it means to identify with Jesus. I think you begin by naming your sin. What is that sin, that one thing that you think is the worst or most troublesome sin that's keeping you from God? That thing that you look at and say, man, if if that was not in my life, I feel like me and God would be okay. Because whatever that is, until you come to see Jesus as being that particular sin on your behalf, it's not going to mean anything to you that he died. Until I look at him and say, he became my lust. He became my pride, my hatefulness, my jealousy, my gossip and racism and sexism and heartlessness and lovelessness. Jesus became all of that so that when he was executed for bearing it, there's nothing left to be punished. This is the beauty of this. Because God cannot punish for the same sin twice. The wages of sin is death. Once there's been a death, he can't punish again. This is really a cool thought if you think about it. Before the law curses me, now that same law speaks in my behalf. I can claim the law in my behalf because I say, God, it would be wrong for you. Jesus died for my sin And because he died, it would be wrong for you to condemn me for it. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the reason why Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, would put it this way. He says, this is a singular consolation for all Christians. Note to self, if you need consolation this morning, Martin Luther has a word for you. It is so to clothe Christ with our sins, to wrap him in my sins, your sins, and the sins of the whole world, and so to behold him bearing all our iniquities. Our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying to him, You be Peter, that denier. You be Paul, that persecutor and cruel oppressor. You be David, that adulterer. You be that sinner who ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. You be that thief who hung on the cross. And you be that person who has committed the sins of all men. And see therefore that you pay and satisfy for them. And we simply add to Luther's quote, and he did. That's what Jesus did. Look, here's my point. Once you begin, once you begin to see that, In your heart's imagination, I realize there's a lot of confusion. Is my head? Is my heart? Where is it? I don't know. But somewhere in your imagination, as you begin to see Jesus as being that for you, you have begun to believe. You're walking in faith in that moment. And the Bible says there's nothing more transformational for you or the world around you than faith. That's what will change you. How? Well, nice segue into my second and last point. And that is the transformation in the presence. Because here is David back in a parade. Look at verse 14 and 15. <laughs> David's again dancing before the Lord. There's music. There's shouting. But David's done something different this time. The text tells us very clearly that he's put, in verse 14, on a linen ephod. What is that? Well, linen ephod was this small metal chest plate that had some gems in it. But it was, the, it was something, though, that a priest wore. David has taken on the role of a priest. Remember, a prophet is someone who represents God to you, but a priest is one who represents you to God. In other words, a priest is one who comes and goes in between. A priest is one who shields you. A priest is one who sacrifices on your behalf. And this is now what begins to change David. He starts sacrificing for his people. Now he's ready to put his life up on behalf of his people. He's ready to give himself up for them. That's what it means to take on the role of a priest. And David is slowly becoming the kind of leader that God wanted him to be, the kind of king that he had to be. Not only that, David's gotten generous, hadn't he? In verses 18 and 19, we see that David has this determination that he's going to be a blessing to the people around him. He had, all of his intentions have changed. He's not there to control or manipulate or manage his subjects, as I'm sure it was the tendency of kings to do in that day. But he's made it as his purpose to bless them. All he wants to do is to see them happy. And that most tangibly manifests itself by giving stuff away. I love this. Everybody who came to the celebration that weekend walked home with some tangible manifestation of the king's blessing. We're told there was bread, there was meat. They were raisins, of all things. It's <laughs> trying to say sustenance, flavor, and sweetness. Don't you see how David, David has now corrected the trajectory of his reign. And, and now he's ready to establish what every historian would agree was the golden age of Jewish history. Why? Because the gospel had taught him to be gracious. Had taught him to give up himself. So the question I want to entertain in closing is this. How does that happen really? I mean, how does someone who is just an ordinary person become an extraordinary example of gracious, generous leadership? Well, verse 16 says that David is down dancing as the ark enters, and all of a sudden you have Michael, his wife, who who looks down on him, literally looks down on him, and just can't stand it. She can't stand it. Now remember, Michael is the daughter of the former king, Saul, that self-obsessed and image-conscious egomaniac that he was, which makes you kind of wonder what it must have been like for her to grow up in that particular household. But when David comes home, she looks at him and says, This is beneath you, David. How embarrassing for you. I mean, don't you know what kind of people you were mixing with down there? What she's so upset about is what you see in verse 20 as she's mocking him. I mean, way to distinguish yourself, David. Good job. You were down there with your servants, female servants. Look, we're not just talking about servants, right? Which were, of course, the lowest in the social caste. But these are the servants of the servants. And even worse than that, they were females. She's so appalled. But here's the thing that you don't need to miss. Something has happened to David that has made him comfortable mixing with the lowest forms of social existence. Hmm. And by the way, he's not just mixing. Michael also adds that David has uncovered himself in the presence of these female slaves of slaves. By the way, that's not getting naked. To uncover yourself was simply meant to disrobe or to sort of remove any semblance of your status or your rank in life that could be known about you by the way you dressed, David got rid of it all. (laughs) David has taken off his kingly crown. He's taken off his kingly robes. David got rid of any distinguishing feature from his body that might make these slave girls think that he thought he was better than them. He got rid of it. And Michael hates it. She hates it. Even stooping to call the king a vulgar fellow. You're just like one of these vulgar fellows. That doesn't mean what we think it means. That doesn't mean dirty, okay, or profane. It just means common. You're acting like a commoner, David. You're acting like you're of low estate. What are you doing? But I love this thought. I love this idea that David, he doesn't need for people to know that he's the king anymore. When Michael is convinced is going to cost David effective leadership, why? Because she's been to the Saul school of kingship. She's like, this is not the way, David. This is not the way it works. But David provides this lesson for in verses 20 and 20, 21 and 22, when he says, look, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Don't mistake that. I don't think that David is kind of spiking the ball in the end zone of Michael's face, right? What he's trying to do is reorient her to listen better when he says, look, God put me here for a reason. He chose me for a reason. The old British Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, thinks there's something important in David saying, The Lord, who chose me? Spurgeon was famous for like preaching on like one or two words. He's got a whole sermon on those three words: Who chose me? The title of the sermon: David dances before the Lord because of his election. <laughs> See what David's saying. David understands that his status before God now is all of grace. And because it is, it has neutralized every other marker on him, whether it's physical or internal, that might distinguish himself from others or set himself above others. And then secondly, he looks at Michael and says, Michael, you don't understand. These slave girls you talked about, they're actually going to hold me in more honor than if I had lorded over them. They're going to respect me and love me more. You want to know why? Because I don't need them to acknowledge that I'm the king. I came to where they were. I went to their place. I visited them in their spot to make myself accessible. And by the way, if you thought that was debasing, buckle up. Because there's plenty more where that came from. You see in my lowliness now, it's only going to get worse as you get further into my heart, Michael. Where would he get that humility? Hmm. Could he see the situation with Bathsheba in this moment? I doubt it. But the point is, David looked and said, I know who I am now. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. The passage ends. And we're all like, what? He's at it again. First of all, he kills Uzzah. And now this poor lady, I don't know, maybe she was just in a bad mood that particular day. it's, It's stricken with barrenness. Hang on just a second, though. Remember, what's most important to David's place in covenant theology. It's his family, is it not? It's as if God is saying, look, the school of Saul has taught Michael to respect people. My child, my, the great person who's going to carry my name through posterity, is not going to be one that comes with that mentality. Whose mentality does it come through? Oh, a guy named Solomon from a mother whose name was Bathsheba, who went through a lot of suffering herself, suffering an indignity of the king's advances and the pain of a lost child? The broken Bathsheba versus the cocky Michael, and God says, yeah, I'm taking the first. Look, I do believe that our culture wrestles and is always trying because this is so true. Where we are is in the center of the center of the gospel this morning. I think it's so true that pop culture can't help but come out of them without them even trying, and so we're going to make yet another visit to them. Marvel Cinematic Universe this morning for just a moment, and the best of all those movies, which is Avengers Endgame. It's climbed up in my top five movies of all time. Bear with me. Tony Stark, Iron Man himself, has traveled back into time to meet his father of all people, who he's been living for his approval his entire life, even long after his father's death. But now that he's face-to-face with him back in time, he starts to chat about his life, and he finds that his father is just a little more humble than he thought that he ever was. At one point, his father says, look, the greater good has rarely outweighed my own capacity for self-interest. Tony kind of cocks his head and looks at him strangely, not really remembering that particular aspect of his personality. But as the conversation goes on, his father tells him that his wife is pregnant. And suddenly, Tony realizes that he's talking about him. (laughs) He's talking to his father before he was born about his mother who was pregnant with him. It's a time travel movie. Bear with me. But then in the midst of it, his father drops this little line here. He says, you know what? The kid's not even here yet, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. And in this flash, and in this moment, and kudos to Robert Downey Jr. for sort of allowing this moment to kind of register with him, something changes. Tony Stark is transformed in that moment. Because at that moment, he looks up and realizes that his father actually cared for him. He has the one thing he always wanted, which was the the affirmation of his dad. And as as they depart from one another, Tony leans up and he grabs his father, who has no idea who Tony is, and hugs him. And he says, Howard, everything's going to be all right. Thank you. Now here's my question as we finish this morning. How did Tony Stark know that everything was going to be all right? How did he know that? Unless in that moment living with his father's affirmation, he suddenly was empowered to do what he knew was coming in the future. And the way, if you haven't seen the movie, It's Your Own doggone on Fault. Because Tony Stark has to give his life to save the world. How was he able to do that? Because his daddy said that he was proud of him and that there was nothing he wouldn't do Look, that's what the gospel wins for you is the favor of your father. And it reminds me of Jesus going up to the mountain of transfiguration and starting to glow with three of his favorite disciples. And Moses and Elijah show up for a super weird reason. But in the midst of that whole thing, there's this voice that comes down and says, This is my beloved son, and I am so pleased with him. And suddenly you realize that that itself becomes empowering for Jesus. And in his humanity, with his Father's blessing, he marches forward to give his life to save his people. That's how you're transformed. The gospel comes and smiles upon you and pours out upon you the Father's favor. And in the midst of that, you look around and think, I can take on anything now. I can sacrifice. I don't need to posture myself in front of you. I don't need you to think great of me by wearing what I'm supposed to wear or saying the things I'm supposed to say or having the job I'm supposed to have or living in the city I'm supposed to live in. Because I have his favor. The father has smiled. He has spoken to me because here's here's the thing. You say, well, hey, the father said that to Jesus, not to me. Oh, careful. (laughs) Because the rest of Paul's theology will say that we are in Christ which means we might as well have been standing there for the Father to look at you and say, I am so pleased with you. And that moment of being pleasing, what does that do to our character? How does that transform us? How does that neutralize the pain of our past? How how does it give us a chance at forgiveness for past mistakes? How does it embolden us to go forward and face whatever it is God has for us in an unknown future? If it wasn't by grace. It's got to be by grace. Because once you work through the calculus of God's grace on your behalf, your character changes. And when your character changes, your marriage changes. When your marriage changes, your family changes. And when your family changes, so does your neighborhood. And you know what? So does your church. And so does your city. We become salt and light to the world because grace took hold. Just like Jesus did for us. We become someone who gives our life for others. Where did we get that? It came from the hands of King Jesus. It's the center of the center, and I hope you hear an invitation in it. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, draw us into that place because we know enough about our hearts that we won't do it without you, without your spirit. We won't see clearly. We won't clothe you in our sin, which just sounds weird. We need your spirit to help us. We come now to sing. Maybe perhaps in our singing, we might draw near to you for the first time and hear by your spirit those words that in Christ you are pleased with us. You know our sin, past, present, and future, and yet you still accept, you still love, you still draw. And So Father, draw people to yourself. If thou hast drawn a thousand times, draw us, Lord, again. Would you do that?